Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We're in the next movement church. And so we're just glad to have you here with us one more Sunday. Every Sunday that you join us is a blessing from the Lord. And so let's just say a word of prayer before we get started. Father, we just thank you once again for this opportunity to come together in your name. And I pray, Father, today that as we dive into this last section of this message, that, Lord, that we will tie up as many loose ends as possible, but also leave room for further exploration and digging, that our hunger and thirst for the word would would continue and that we would continue to push past, you know, complacency. I pray, Father, that we would be folks who, who seek you every single day and have a heart to seek and know you even deeper. We pray that this message will help us to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, good morning, Next Movement Church. We are experiencing cloud cover today. We actually had some rain, and we are grateful for it. Um, we're, and so we're glad to be with you on this Sunday morning. Grateful you chose in the fellowship with us because there are so many places you could be today, but you still chose to, to get in here with us. So we pray that it's worth your while. Um, today is the last week that we are going to spend in this series, Life Has Sprung. Ooh, the tears. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I see a frowny face over in the corner. Don't be frowny for too long, frowny face. You know who I'm talking about, Shannon. Um, <laughs> but like I'm saying, it has been an incredible 11 weeks. Um, I can't believe it's been that long. 11 weeks on this series. Um, we probably had a good three or four weeks before that on on just w- on the Wade in the Water series. And so I believe that almost three months later... We have done a lot of digging, and I told you that we could have gone on the entire year like this, and we would never exhaust it fully. But I, but I believe that there's some things that we need to be touching on in the near future, and so this is a really good place for us to start making that transition, and it will be worth your while. Don't worry, don't worry. The water never leaves us because it is such a prevalent um, theme and message throughout the entire body of scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. So my hat goes out to all of you who have joined us on this journey. And you decided to stick around and hear the conclusion of the matter. So whether this is your first week or your, or your 15th week, thank you. And I just give you a round of applause. Give yourselves a round of applause because this was not easy to do. But I feel like we need to put some completion here so you feel like you achieved something because you did. <laughs> this was not easy. Um, so this, is, this will be a jam-packed Sunday because I want to I wanna get it all in today so that we can, we can make a clean transition. But um, last week was intense. We covered and recapped approximately two months worth of learning materials in one hour. Huh. <laughs> and you're still here, so I'm impressed. And we surely didn't cover everything. So if you're new here or you're interested in exploring our lessons in greater detail, and yes, Lisa, you get a complete gold star for all that you did, <laughs> all your participation. You get participation awards with me. <laughs> um, you know, if you're interested and you want to you want to hear what we've done over the last few weeks, please join us at nextmovementchurch.com. Go to the sermons the sermons tab, and you can you can go back and review them all inside of our sermons tab player. All right. So in this last week, we have finally made it to the destination that for us at this time matters the most, and we are standing at the foot of the cross. And I always 
put the disclaimer out that every time we get ready to talk about the cross, it's like, you know, it's never, it's never an easy conversation because it wasn't the most beautiful, but it was still the most beautiful of moments um, when we understand what the purpose was for. And so we have followed Jesus in our study together, um, followed Jesus, and we've observed his ministry and how water imagery is used to capture our understanding of him as Messiah. And so today as our as a final destination, we are ready to explore the water and some of the blood as well from Jesus's side. All right. So this is we finally made it here. So let's see what what the word has to say about it. All right. So for us to get started today, let's go into John chapter 19 and we're going to read from verses 31 to 39. And we're, so that's where we're going to be today. <clears throat> and as always, I hope you're prepared to follow along. Um, take notes because I'm going to squeeze a lot of information into this session today. And I hope it's going to be as enriching for you as it was for me while researching it. So if you're ready for that, just go ahead and send me a ready in the chat and we'll be ready to go. Just send me, I get a couple readies, I'll be ready to go. John chapter 19, 31 through 39. And good morning, everybody on Facebook. I see you chiming in. If you're following along with us on the screen, we're, going, we're starting in on John chapter 19, 30, 31 through 39. And this is going to be a journey. All right. I see the readies. Ready, ready, ready. I see the readies coming in. All right. So let's, let's jump in and let's go together. And the scripture reads, now... It was the day of preparation. And because the next day was to be a special Sabbath. So right now we're at the place where Jesus has been, been crucified, hung here. And now they're having a discussion about what to do next. Because he's there, they're there hanging, him and the two and the two thieves. And so it says, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first two first men who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night this scholar, right? And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Blessed be the reading of the word. And so what we've just reached here is the event of Jesus dying on the cross, according to the gospel of John. 
Now, if you've read about the crucifixion in, from this book or other gospel accounts, you'll agree that Jesus's arrest and crucifixion was centered on identity issues. Remember, we talked about identity crises last week. And so last week, we finished up our lesson by highlighting the fact that Jesus was not experiencing an identity crisis himself, rather quite the opposite. All of the gospel narrative points to Jesus as the son of God from birth right through to resurrection and ascension. And as Jesus was revealing more of his identity to the world, the powers and the people around him were faced with their own identity crisis, right? And this is something that we, that we see even into this current day. We'd say, what is your position on who he is based on what he said and what has been revealed? And so they were forced to leave this, these people were forced to leave this valley of indecision that they sat in and take a position on who they believe Jesus really was. Was he a good teacher? Was he a prophet? Was he truly the Messiah who's come? Or just some cult leader who has caused more harm to people and more harm to the Jewish people at the time and the people that followed him? Was he just some cult guy, right? And one interesting fact as we explore this is that the exact encounter of the blood and water that flows from Jesus's side is only found in the Gospel of John. So there's some trivia for you. That's only found in the Gospel of John. Go back and take a look. But part of what we're exploring today in, in today's lesson is really significant because we're looking here at this soldier's testimony, right? As it relates to Jesus's identity as Messiah in this experience. So we see that the soldier has pierced Jesus's side and it was witnessed that blood and water have flown out. Hmm. So let's talk about why this is so important. I mean, why would, why would only John <clears throat> make this, have this conversation? And so one question I hope that you have is why did John and John alone think it was so important to include this in the story? And we have to remember that John did, did write his Gospels after Ascension and many years afterward, right? So there must be a reason why John felt it necessary to include eyewitness testimony at the time that he was writing. And so there's a few theories out there that I think are really worthy of us considering. But this first one, I think, is very simple and sums up a lot of where we will go today. <laughs> and so this and here's what it is. It says the first theory out there is that it verifies that Jesus actually died. And you're probably like, well, simple enough, right? But it says it verifies that Jesus actually died. Now, if you are a believer or a follower of Jesus, then this seems like an overstating of the obvious for you. But, but it's actually not an overstating of the obvious. Because there are many who would come after, and even in modern day, who say Jesus was not raised from the dead because Jesus never physically died. 
You know, there's there are many schools of thought that believe he never physically died. So we have this testimony from this soldier that from the from this soldier's vantage point, and we're looking at this, and it says here that he pierced his side, and we're using this as some type of verification for the fact that he actually died. But I wonder how, right? So let's talk about that a little more. So there is a theory, and I'm putting up John 1933 again. There is a theory that this soldier, this is one theory, and I, I, it's not one that, I, um, that I'm prone to, and I'll tell you why momentarily. But it says, there, but there is a theory out there that the soldier sought to pierce Jesus' heart when he poked him in, when he pressed him in his side, and the goal was to speed up his death. But if, and so let me tell you why that's not, not the side of the theory that I sit on. Because as we read the scripture here, it says, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, right? And so based on what we're reading here, there would be no need for this soldier to take a spear and aim for his heart because it would, be, would have been unnecessary. He was already dead when they came to him, right? So, so this idea of piercing him to speed up the death was probably not the case. He would have already needed to be dead. Um, so also, but I think the most likely reason for the piercing, so I'll tell you my most likely reason for the piercing is actually a lot more simple, but will become more complex as we talk. <laughs> and so the most likely reason for the piercing, I think, was actually more of a quality check. It was actually more of a quality check. It was just, it was a prod and it was a quality check. And he may have been a little bit more overzealous at the time and actually pierced the skin. But if he had reacted, if Jesus had reacted while being prodded with the piercing, then he would not be dead, right? And so if he's not dead, then the next action, which is the one they set out to do, which was break his legs, would be the next thing to do, right? So the goal was go break the legs of, the, of those who've been crucified so it would speed up the death. Person one, broken. Person two, broken. Jesus, already out, no breaking. And then the piercing. So it was the piercing may have been just more of a, hey, you still here? You still here? And in that process, he becomes pierced. All right, so reasonable? Reasonable thinking. All right. So let's keep let's keep some reasonable thoughts on this. And you know me, I like to I like to give you a lot of information that surrounds this before we get down to what this means for all of us. Here's something for for those of you who are medically inclined that you you'll probably hear about. I hear these conversations a lot. So here's a really old article coming from JAMA that I would like you to take a look at. But if the medical community is never lacking on opinions on this topic, never. And so of course um, their focus, of course, would be the medical reasoning. For Jesus's death. So how, you know, how did it happen? And this is an article from the Journal on American, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, very reliable, um, very reliable journal article set. And so here they have an article. And if you're reading closely, as you can see, they're discussing the physical death of Jesus Christ. And this is, like I said, just medical research article. And you're going to get a lot of terms. You're going to see, if you're reading closely, you're going to see, um, I wish I would have highlighted it for you, but you'll see terms like hypovolemic shock. Like I know I know about three people on the line who know that stuff. Hypovolemic shock and um, exhaustion asphyxia. 
Like, you know, these are all terms that you medical folks are, are into. And if you're reading in the last few lines there, if you could just see down at the bottom at the, with the last few lines on the abstract that I, that I put up on the screen, it's, you can see that they make a mention of the soldier's spear in the side to ensure Jesus's death, right? So it's like he was gone already. They think he, they think he died from other things like this, like exhaustion asphyxia or hypovolemic shock. But they, and then they, they refer to the fact that they believe there that Jesus's death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier's spear and his side. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. Okay, so for those of you who, need, who love research and want to see the 360, here you go. Um, so there's tons of information out there that says, hey, very, very much so. He must have been dead. Modern day, past day. So all of that is interesting to me. And I love, and I'll go down every rabbit hole with you on trivia information. But we must always remember, most importantly, when we're talking about John and the reason for writing, we have to remember that the story of Jesus's death is written primarily for theological reasons and not physiological reasons. You know the difference, right? We're talking theological and not just physiological. So what does that mean for us? It means that though this is information and it's interesting information, the gospel writers who write who wrote, where we read this from, the gospel writer, was less concerned with the how he died. Instead, they were focused on why he died and what that means for us. It's very important for us to understand the purpose of writing when we read it. I've seen so much great information coming in the chat. I wish I was keeping up with you guys. And so this study, this is a study principle that I hang almost all my whatever level of intellectual pursuit I have, okay? My, my principle of study is always this. It's not enough to read a text for literal understanding alone. It's not enough. It, some texts are meant to be understood literally, but it's not enough to just read it for the literal. Understanding its author or understanding the purpose of the work you read is equally important, sometimes if not more. So I think many of us can get trapped in like the philosophical arguments that lead nowhere because we're just trying to apply the books of the Bible outside of their intended purpose. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we get into, into philosophical traps when we're, and arguments that are unnecessary because we don't take the books of the Bible for their intended purpose. And believe it or not, in these 66 volumes that we've been condensed to, because there are other volumes out there that either made the cut or didn't, we have to know what was the purpose of the writing of the book that we are quoting. And so, because each book has its own purpose. I use this reasoning a lot when I think about Genesis and the creation story. So here's, here's, a, here's a freebie for you today. When I think about Genesis and the creation story, if you understand what type of literature Genesis is, you would not ask it to describe to you atoms and dinosaurs. You wouldn't use it to describe that because there are accommodations in scripture for those things, you know, verses one and one and one and two in the beginning. And then it was without void and it was silent and we repurposed. There's some accommodations in there for, for endless amounts of, of history of the earth. But 
The literature that you read in Genesis is historical narrative. Okay, if you want to type that in, historical narrative, if you feel like it. So a historical narrative. It is also what we call epic storytelling. We're not saying that this is just, we're not just reducing it to genres, but when you understand the writing, it makes you adjust how you answer questions or the questions that you ask. It's epic storytelling. So just like this, you know, when I say epic storytelling, it's like when you, when you, when you talk to a child and you want to tell them the story of something, and it could be a real story. But if I, if you have children or you have grandchildren or you're around children and they ask you, tell me the story of how you and -and so-and-so met or tell me the story of our family and how we got here. Or tell, you know, when there's a, there, you usually will have some sort of a story start point. And sometimes you're not telling them all the details of that story start point. And my 12-year-old just said, epic poem. You got that right, girl. Go, girl. And, but when you start, you'll start with, or have you ever read, and I, I, I'm not trivializing this, but just for reference purposes, when you read stories, they'll often start with the, in the beginning, or once upon a time. Or in the, and this is, these are the ways that, that it is designed for you to understand that there is a starting point to this story. There's some, there's some reference here. And then we're going to drop you into the characters and the narrative. And so when you read Genesis and it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't tell you that the, the start point was at this point in time, blah, blah, blah. It says in the beginning, there was God created the stuff up here and the stuff down here. And it was looking like this. And this is what happened to it. Now let's get down to the meat and potatoes of the story. And so you have to understand what's the purpose of of what you read. Okay. So again, epic storytelling. So going back to where I was, um, the story of Jesus we are reading today, again, is just this way. Remember, you're not focused on the how, but you're more focused on the why and the what it means when John writes. And so this concern is showing itself very clearly in this account. Then when we talk about the water from Jesus's side, it seems medically reasonable and maybe for some medically inexplicable, but based on what we've studied here, this is a theologically necessary point to make that there was blood and water that flowed from his side. You could have missed that all together and kept going about your day. But there's a theological point that's being made here. And those of us who've been here for 11 weeks, plus you understand that we never miss the opportunity to explore water imagery when we see it. Amen. And so for us, this is what I'll say yet another water miracle by Jesus, even in his death. For those who are writing, that's for you. This is yet another, another Water miracle by Jesus, even in his death. Another water miracle. So now that we've committed to answering this question, not physically, but theologically, because that's what we're going to do today is explore what's the theological meaning of all of this. Um, here's some popular conversation or arguments on why this water matters. So we'll cover at least, I think maybe at least two of them. So here we go. First, one thought around this is that 
it is intended as a symbol of Jesus's identity or his divinity more, more clearly. In the past two months, we've done a lot of work to align ourselves with Jewish tradition and Jewish thinking, right? You've got a lot, if you've got a lot of Hebrew this last month and a half, just wave to me because I know <laughs> there's a lot. We do a lot of, we do Hebrew almost every week here, but We've done a lot of thinking and done a lot of research on Jewish traditions and Jewish thinking for interpreting these symbolic things. But this situation would not just speak to the Hebrew person or the Jewish person of the day. But here is an interpretation when you see the water and the blood that would also speak to Greeks and Romans of the day. Now we have to remember, Jesus was to be the king of all. They may have crucified him and said, king of the Jews. But the goal was for him to be king of all nations, right? That is, he was sent for everyone. And so when we read the scripture and see that there were Greeks, there were, there were Romans, citizens involved I want to show you what this would have meant also for them. We know what this would mean for Jewish folks, but what about those like the, the soldier that pierced him? What about those who were observing in the public that were not Jewish? What would this have meant for them? How, how would this speak to them about his divinity? So I'm going to go from the Jewish perspective. And those of you who do homework on things like mythology are going to love what I'm about to talk to you about. Um, See this yellow stuff right here, kind of golden, kind of golden. This is just a, a representation of what this could be. But this is what we call Ichor. Anybody ever heard that term before? Ichor. Some people say Ichor or Ichor, but I say Ichor. Now here is a Greek, there, there's a Greek mythology fact that may help with our imaginations here. So we already have the ideas of what water meant to the Jews when they would see it. But let's talk about those lay folks that were laying around. And so the Greeks of the day, they believed in what we call the pantheon of gods, right? And there are other pantheons of gods. Um, in, in East Indian culture, there are many pantheons of gods. And so, but I'm going to talk about this one in particular. And so uh, let me go back. I'm going back. I'm going to leave this here, this eye on the screen, because I need to build your imagination up. So let me read to you the definition from Wikipedia, which sums up all the definitions that I've ever read on Ishore. It says, Ishore is golden in color and fluid in form and is considered a sacred liquid, but harmful to mortals. Gods and demigods and other divine beings were depicted as bleeding Ishore when harmed by specific materials. So if you actually were able to go to war or battle with a god or demigod and they became injured, Ishore may leak. And so some interpretations depict Ishore as a thin, watery, sometimes blood-tinged discharge. And so they would see, and if you were, so if you're a full god, then that's what you would leak. If you're demigod, then you probably wouldn't bleed just eyeshore. So that's the what. 
But let's talk about the why this matters. That's what. So this is what they would call a liquid other than blood leaking from someone's body. Okay. For us, we, we know some, we've seen something similar to ice shore. Have you ever had a cut and you just had pus? And it was like, yelly, ugh. Like that's, for them, that is, in layman's terms, that qualifies as ice shore as well. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. But we'll get back to that. Anyways, it was believed, here's the why. Let me talk to you about the philosophical why or the theological why for this for them. Um, it was believed that divine beings who leaked blood instead of ice shore were showing evidence of their humanity. So for this soldier, for those around who were of the, of the system at the, at the time, to identify both blood and water in this declaration, I mean, even from this Hellenistic perspective, there's something divine about this Jesus. Because he did not just leak blood, which would say humanity, he leaks another liquid that's clear. And for them, it's like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe this guy is something more than we thought. He's both somewhat human, and in case of this water, he's man. Huh. Interesting thinking, right? So what does that mean for our interpretation of the scripture? We know that the Bible isn't focused on pagan rituals, so to speak. But in looking at the first point we made today, this would be a symbol for both Jews and Greeks that something divine happened here. So it deserved to be said. Jews have their own water imagery, and now you know that the Greeks would have had also their own version of this by looking at this as divine eyeshore. Hmm? Interesting fact? New fact for someone? Cool. If it's a new fact for you, give me thumbs up. That's new for you. Thumbs up. Amen. Because I want to make sure you got something new there. All right. So the next acknowledgement of this kind of bleeding for John could have been pointing towards those future Gnostics that were coming. Because remember, he writes after this time. He doesn't write in the moment. He writes after, many years after. And so the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus truly died. I mentioned earlier about proving that he was actually dead. Um, the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus truly died. So this could have been another way for John to point to the fact or to counter their beliefs. Still, this, and because, like I said, they say he never died. So we have to verify that he died in order for them to move forward and say that he, he rose again. So I still say the strongest argument for this is this eyewitness account to his divinity that speaks both in this water imagery to both Jews and Greeks of the day. Amen? So, all right. So now let's talk about our next, our next consideration here. Let's talk, there's another consideration. So we have this symbol of Jesus's divinity. But our next consideration has to do with the Jewish Passover, the Pesach. So, if you remember the discussion we had on the Sukkot, which is the festival of booths. <clears throat> the Pesach is the second pilgrimage feast that is conducted. We said there were three, right? And so we're going in short order here. We had the festival of booths or, or tabernacles, the Sukkot, 
we are now in the Pesach, which is the Passover, which has now, after the time of Jesus and resurrection, we celebrate during Resurrection Sunday slash Easter Sunday. All this stuff here all falls in the same in the same time frame. And then, of course, we talk. Of course, we we talk about Pentecost later on, which is when we get to eat all that good cheesecake. But okay. So let's talk about the festival, the, the, the second festival. The Pesach is the second of the pilgrimage festivals conducted. So required festival for me to go into town and go to the temple. And Jesus was crucified at the time of the year that, and at this exact time of the year, and could be considered the sacrificial lamb for the atonement of sin, right? This is some a concept that many, many of us believers are very familiar with. But I want to tell you, the day itself, as you read in the top of the scripture, the first line of scripture, that this was the day of preparation. Say that to yourself. Day of preparation before the actually holiest day of the time. So this was the day of preparation. This is the day of preparation, thank you, before the Passover itself. It is the day. So what takes place on the day of preparation? Glad you asked. It is the day. When the lambs are slaughtered for the offering, they are slaughtered for the offering on the day of preparation for the atonement of sin before the following day of purification, water ceremonies. Got it? We have atonement, we have preparation for the blood, sacrificial lamb stuff going into the next day, which would be purification, water cleansing, over so holy ceremonies, okay? So here's something you may not know about capital punishment, which plays a role during this, during this time frame for the, for the Jewish people. Jesus was slaughtered on the previous day before the, before the actual high holy day, but the body was required to be taken down before the purification day or the land would be defiled, according to the Bible. So you want to see this a little further? I'll give you some scripture. So if you're flipping, we're going to Deuteronomy 21 and verses 22 to 23. So we're going to write that down for yourself. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. All these books that we don't often dig into, right? (laughs) All these ones we don't often dig into that we should read. So here's, here's what they were operating from. When you read that scripture and they say, we need you to take these bodies down because we can't have them hanging going into the high day of the Passover starts because of this. And as we read, it reads, if someone guilty of a capital offense, so you're punishable by death, is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who is hung on a pole under is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So very specific directions there, right? They would would not be able to leave this hanging because they would not be in a position to, to consecrate with the water stuff that they do the next day because they would have desecrated the land itself. Hmm, interesting, right? So you're wondering, okay, they put them up, they take them up. Why, why we do this? Because of that. They are, they're still following the rules. They're still following the law. <laughs> I love what you said, Lisa. Yep. Oh my gosh. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, interesting books to read here. And so if you 
take the time to reread this account in John 19, which I'd love for you to go back and do when you have some time. You'll see the connection to this scripture right there, right? But I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring this up. I'm probably going to bring this up one more time. I'm going to bring this up. I'm only, and no, I'm only bringing it up to make this one case. I'm going to make the case that this bloodletting that takes place with Jesus is messy and defiling. And the symbol of water that comes from Jesus in the midst is an indication that something miraculous and purifying is happening in the process. Let me say that again. According to Jewish tradition and law, this slaughter is messy and defiling to the point where we have to clean it up before the next day or we cannot be cleansed. But the very fact that Jesus leaks water in the midst of the defilement says that there's something miraculous and purifying that's taking place in the middle of all of this. You get that? Interesting. I mean, there's something, there's still a sign of purification taking place. Let, let me make this even more clear for folks. Anybody recognize these? Anybody ever see these before? The seven sacraments, you hear about those? Oh yeah, I know some of you who know this. You see, if you're Catholic, grew up Catholic, or if you grew up in, in traditional church set, um, circles, these are familiar for you. As a matter of fact, they're the most integral part of what happens in church services. There, as you have seen, you've seen before and you've heard of the seven sacraments of the church. You've seen them. And so those sacraments are baptism and the Eucharist, which is communion, right? And also confirmation. Those first three are called the sacraments of initiation, right? So the, you have the, you have when they have baptized, you, you take first communion and you're confirmed into this, into the church, so to speak. And so that's what they call the sacraments of initiation. You, and so this is, these are very particular rituals that take place that they feel are milestones that need to be done at a certain point in people's lives. And, and I'm going over this because I want you, I want you to, when you read the word to see, hey, they're not that much different than us. We have things that, that we have in society that reflect a lot of what we read in scripture. Okay. So again, we have these sacraments of initiation. That, that institutionalizing of your commitment or admit, admission into the kingdom of God, so to speak. All right. Now we have reconciliation and anointing the sick, the sick, which is sometimes called extreme unction. There's another one too, extreme unction, which is more prophetic. So these are the sacraments of healing, right? And these are ones when, we, when we're administered, when we're praying for healing and, and looking for healing from God for folks. Then matrimony and ordination are the sacraments of service. So what they would say is that you're making a commitment either way to lifetime service either in, in some respect, whether it's a lifetime service and in matrimony to continue the family of God, that's a, it's a, it's an act of service to do so, to make that union. It's also an act of service to go into to ministry or to commit to ministering. And so especially in the Catholic Church, you would see that division very, very specifically where a priest never married. And then you have you have, and then everybody else would, so to speak. So but either way that you went, you are you are saying that I have made a complete commitment 
to living out my life in a way that will continue to further the kingdom of God. And so during the Christendom period, these sacraments dictated the life cycle of many societies. And we've already studied, so we've already studied, let me talk Jewish to you again. We've already studied mikvah baths in relationship to baptism. But yet again, in Jesus's death, we see both the water as a sign of the purification of the body and the blood and communion to us all. See that? So we have this baptism, symbol of baptism with the water, but the body and the blood are what we serve as communion elements, right? So we see those sacraments of all the areas of initiation or bringing into the the community of God, the family of God, the kingdom of God are completed in this one picture. Thumbs up, thumbs up. It makes sense. All right. All right. I want to make sure I'm not, am I losing you? You with me? You still with me? All right. I see some thumbs up. All right. I want to make sure you're still with me because I know we're covering a lot today, but these are all ways that we've seen these expressed, this, this, this picture expressed in our lives, in our world and in the world that we live in. All right. So let's talk about this reference to Jesus makes. Boom. So Jesus makes this reference to himself. Um, in the synoptic gospels, right? And we quote him when he take when we taking communion together. But I want to read this story from John's from John's perspective. So when we talk about, I'm going to go back one. When you're talking about here, when we're talking about the communion, the Eucharist, we always read it from Matthew, don't we? We always read it from Matthew. But I want to read it to you, read you parts of that from John. Because I feel like we need to cover this in John in order for for you to see how important this is to the crucifixion itself. So let me see if I've got John 6. Anybody got John 6? We're going to go to John 6 and I'm going to go to John 6, 16 through 59. Let me see if I can pull that up. I'm going to. Let's do it this way. Hang 10. Let's go. John 6, 16 through 59. I'm going to take that to the screen. Love technology. All right. There we go. Boom. Look at me. All right. So let's read this. I think that this will be interesting for you. Let's talk about, let's talk about communion from a different side of the conversation. It reads here, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. 
Then they were willing to take him into the boat. So, you know, they really had to check and see if it was Jesus. They're like, oh, we're not letting this, this guy in, right? But they check. They say, okay, take him in the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Interesting. The next day, the crowd had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, realizing that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed on the place where the people had eaten and eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. They're like, what? <laughs> Where'd they go? They can't leave us. We're out of here. We're going to go look for him. So they go looking. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's like, what? Why'd you, how would you leave us? Bruh. And so Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He's like, look, y'all, you only came for the cake. Y'all just came to eat. Okay. What do you want? Exactly. Freeloaders. So, so he says, do not work for food that spoils. I love this. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God, the father has placed his seal of approval. So now he starts referring to the son of man. Yes, I hear it. Two snaps, clap back, all of it. I hear it, Shen. And so then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. All right, so he said, this is what you're supposed to do, believe. And so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Now, let me, let me just pause for a second here. Did they not already follow him around and listen to him preach? Did they not already get free food that he multiplied? Did they not already know that it was, he was so miraculous that they went from one side of the lake to another side of the lake in search of him? And he says, look, you're freeloading and you're done. And they say, no. Well, what do we got to do to get in? Because clearly they just want to eat some more. And he says, all I'm asking you to do is believe in the Son of Man. They're like, well, we need a sign. Just <laughs> already like two or three. Okay. So, all right. So we're already, we're having issues with folks. But who who's ever had people in, around you like that before? Have you experienced folks like this? Amen. Okay. So just know that this has been going on before you. This has nothing to do with you. People are just people. Okay. <laughs> Reloading is going to happen until he returns. Amen. So he says, so they're saying, what will you do? Yes. Show me state. I love it. He said, 31 says, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now all of a sudden they remember the Bible. Now they want to remember, well, you know, he gave manna. God gave manna. It's like, you already ate from Jesus. What are you? Moving on. So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, 
It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he says, then they say, sir, they said, always give us this bread. We, we want this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. You got it already, right? And then it says, all those the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on that last day. Woo, I can't wait for the last day. And for my father, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on that last day. And you're wondering, well, are we there yet? We're not there yet. There's more. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. So, you know, they're making fun. Ugh, this Jesus. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Who is this guy? And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, we know his family, okay? We know them. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Who's this Jesus, Asia? Who's this Jesus? Who's Jesus think he is? Come on now. And so he said, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up on that last day. Ask Mary and she will say that an angel came. It was written in the prophets. So now he's telling them from the same books they quote. It was written, it is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He is he only he has seen the Father. Verily, or which is truly, verily, verily, right? We're at the verily, verily. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then he goes on and says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they yet died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Communion scripture. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue what? Sharply amongst themselves. Now that it's on now. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Girl, girl, right? They're, they're on it now. They're upset. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. <laughs> Woo, Jesus. So, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he's going, he's going full force offensive right now. He's like, I'm going all in. Drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me, I live because the father, so the one who feeds on me will be, will live because of me. He's like, look, I, I'm not backing down. I'm going to, I'm going to make this so graphic that you're disgusted. That's, <laughs> that's what Jesus decides. I'm not backing down. Love Jesus. It's like, you don't like it? I'm, I'm going to go harder. So this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Amen. <laughs> oh, Jesus was throwing all that, all, that, all that stuff out there. So remember, like I said, I started this conversation by saying you have the literal and you have the theological, right? So what do you think was happening with these children of Israel when they were listening to what Jesus had to say here? They freaked out because they were on the literal side of the message. They, could, they had nothing to compare it to, but we do. We have the full story. We have the end of the matter. So we understand what Jesus meant about the bread and the wine and the blood and the rest, right? But Jesus delivers an extremely hard teaching to the people of the day. As a matter of fact, once he finally offended everybody, his disciples come to him in the next line of scripture and say, uh, so Jesus, um, that's hard, bro. Like, I don't understand. Can you, can you help me? Help me out here. <laughs> like, this was a hard teaching. They kind of say, you know, on the real, Jesus, this was tough. Help me. Um, and Jesus goes on after that. And he calls out Judas, like right after that. So this is right when he goes and transitions to calling out Jesus, Judas and saying, hey, and one of you are going to betray me. So, you know, Jesus was not in a good mood <laughs> that day. It was a tough day. Go back and read it. It's, it's a lot. It's good reading. But I chose this scripture to read instead of the one in Matthew that speaks about him, because that one speaks about his personal time with the disciples. And that's what we like to think about when we think about the communion, don't we? We think about this opportunity to be one-on-one -on -one in this intimate space with Jesus. And this happens before that moment. This is the first time he really talks about this eating of this and drinking of this and blah. So we romanticize. We got the romantic side of it. We, oh, you know, this is my body broken for you. Drink ye all of this in remembrance of me. And we say, thank you, Jesus. And we take the body and the blood and we're all mystical for about three minutes. But Jesus delivered this for the first time in the most graphic and disgusting of ways in a lot of ways, right? It's disgusting. My son says, disgusting. Like, it's disgusting. <laughs> and he almost digs in deeper just to frustrate them even further with the message. And so this conversation is anything other than fuzzy and intimate. Jesus uses it 
as something that will be seen as offensive and disgusting and quite frankly, pagan at this point. It's disgusting. And so you must take that and think about that then in that context of scripture that we discussed about the fact that they need to make sure that this act, these, this, this killing, this blood, this flesh, this bleeding, though they see it as a necessary action, was also something that spoke to something deeper when the water shows up. Because that water, again, is purifying and a symbol of something better. Amen? Yes, my son says he was legit, though. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> Jesus was totally legit. And so, anyway, but we're going to fast forward again to chapter 19. Because we see the same open invitation from Jesus. He's, we, we've seen it twice, and this will be the third. He puts this open invitation out and says, look, you want to follow? You got to eat and drink. And then we see it again when he's with the disciples, intimately. To remember, I need you to eat and drink. But when we fast forward here to chapter 19, we're seeing what he said being played out for the, all the public to see. Not just the disciples. It's played out for the entire world to see. That he, is he truly the Christ? And in his death, and with this blood, and with this water, we get to make that choice. Amen? Amen. So let, I'm going to go in one more direction for today, and then we're going to wrap up. Because we've got, we're, we're close. We're getting there. But I'm hoping that all of this is helping, helping your, your thoughts in some way on this topic. All right. So here's another consideration we should make. And the consideration is this. We, is that this, I test, this eyewitness testimony that we read of is the literal release of the Spirit as promised in John 7. Amen? The literal release so we're putting our Jewish thinking caps back on, right? So we've already done what happens in the public space, Greeks and Romans, what everybody, what everybody who's observed Jesus. But let's put our, put our Jewish thinking caps back on. So let's go, we're going into John 7 again. Let's go back to 7, 38 through 39. But let's go back to that scripture. And it says here that Jesus says, as we read, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water, will flow from within them. And by this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Amen. So this testimony of water flowing from Jesus in his death is the clearest, most literal evidence of being the source of the spirit that he speaks of. Amen? This is the physical evidence of a spiritual, of a spiritual transformation. And so this is the last scripture that we'll tackle, Ezekiel 47. And I don't think, and I'm going to be honest, I don't think I've ever preached on this scripture because it's not one that comes up every day, but it's so necessary Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. And I'm reading it to you out of the message because I need you to get the imagery right now for the time that we have left. It says here, 
And this is the vision, right? Now he brought me back. Ezekiel has this vision. Now he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water pouring out from under the temple porch to the east. And the temple faced east. And the water poured from the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And he then took me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the gate complex on the east. And the water was gushing from under the south front of the temple. So there's just water cascading from everywhere, right? And he walked to the east with a measuring tape and measured off 1,500 feet, leading me through water that was ankle deep. And he measured off another 1,500 feet, leading me through water that was knee deep. So you see it's progressively getting deeper, right? And he measured off another 1,500 feet, leading me through water that was now what? Waist deep. So you can see, it's like you're walking out into the ocean, going deeper, 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 right? And he measured off another 1,500 feet, but by now it was a river over my head, water to swim in, water no one could possibly walk through. And he said, son of man, have you had a good look? And then he took me back to the riverbank. And while sitting on the bank, I noticed a lot of trees on both sides of the river. Hmm, it's pretty. And he told me, this water flows east, descends to Arabah, and then into the sea, in the sea of stagnant waters. And when it empties into those waters, the sea will become fresh. And when it, wherever the river flows, life will flourish. Great schools of fish, because the river is turning the salt sea into fresh water. Where the river flows, life abounds. Man, that can preach by itself. And so fishermen would stand shoulder to shoulder along the shore from Engedi all the way to En Englam, casting their nets. And the sea will teem with fish of all kinds, like the fish of the great Mediterranean. So this is beautiful. The swamps and marshes won't become fresh. They'll stay salty. <laughs> take that wherever you want to take that. I'm just going to put that out there. But the river itself on both banks will grow fruit trees of all kinds. Their leaves won't wither. The fruit won't fail. And every month they'll bear fresh fruit because the river from the sanctuary flows to them. And the fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Wow. What a beautiful scripture. Could you imagine that as you're reading it? I, and if you're having a hard time imagining that, here's, here's a drawing I wanted to show you. Think about this. There's many, many renditions. Um, it's very hard to capture all of those things in one shot, but I thought this would be useful. And I love this drawing because I found it online and 
it just kind of concisely captures the imagery in this scripture for me. And so we, we see this temple, right? You can kind of see where the, where the temple is in that white patch of the screen. You can see it kind of exists on that side. And the only thing we can't see in this picture, because you can see the gradual depth of water going out into that, that sea of eternity. But what you can't see from this picture, of course, is the water flowing in all four of the directions as we, as we read. But know that all of it is coming from this, like, this, this source from the temple. What a thought. So in John 2 and 21, Jesus compares himself to the temple building, right? So get that in your mind. Jesus compares himself to this temple. So we start with Jesus, if you think about it. And he says that he is that temple that gets destroyed and raised up again. And so if we look at this in, the old, in this Old Testament scripture, we see Jesus again was referring to himself as the source of the living water supply. Because remember, we just read, from this temple, this water is forever flowing. And as it goes into the seas, it freshens the water and refreshes the water and makes it good and fit for life on either side of the banks and in the water itself. And so what I want you to take away from the scripture is the image of what the prophet Ezekiel and many after him saw as the future that we're actually working toward. This is a future of beauty, of abundance, and peace. This future starts, though, with this water source, which we've identified in Jesus. Amen? And you might say, well, Georgia, it's Ezekiel. You read in Ezekiel. So isn't this future just for the Jewish people? Good question. But if you've been following along with me for the last while, we see, as we read into the prophecies of the future, many things. But we almost always see where God makes provision for the entire world of human beings as they choose to humble himself to him. And this scripture is no different. And I'm going to show you why. In the same Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, if you were in verse 21, 21 says, here's, the, here's, what, here's what God tells them. You might, I'm going to show you something you've never read before. Then again, y'all are smarter than me. You've read this before, but here's something I didn't read. So you are to distribute this land, this same land we're talking about. You're to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. And you are to allot it as an inheritance for yourself. And for the foreigners residing among you and who have children. And you are to consider them as what? Native-born Israelites along with you. They are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And in whatever tribe a foreigner resides... There you are to give them their inheritance, declares the who? Sovereign Lord. Did you need to see that one more time? Says the sovereign who? 
the sovereign Lord. Amen. So for you Bible scholars, there are very similar scriptures read in Isaiah and in Zechariah that say the same thing. And in our 12 weeks together, we did read of some of that, didn't we? And so I hope that we can begin to learn what it means to read scripture more carefully and see that God actually wants as many of us as possible with him. His goal is to bring the human family together under one umbrella. And so hopefully that will at least help us to and behoove us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because guess what? I hate to break the news to you. It seems like some of them might be your neighbors again anyway. <laughs> some of these neighbors that you're quarreling with, they get in good with Jesus. They might be living beside you in the eternal city. <laughs> get along, saints. Get along. <laughs> Sorry, but I hate to break it to you. You might have them as neighbors, so get along with them neighbors. All right, here's my final thoughts on this series. Here's my final thoughts on this series, my final thoughts on Jesus. I would like for you to consider Jesus' declaration of being the source of living water on the last day of the Sakat is fulfilled in this literal depiction of water flowing from his body on the cross. We see it physically take place on the cross. There are some symbolic things that also take place in this moment. And here's what they are. The water represents the spirit being poured out on all people. And from our discussion today, we see that all people through that act were able to recognize him as, as that. No matter what their background was theologically, they could see the miracle take place. And number two, like the sacrificial lambs and the cleansing water rituals, his blood and water replaced the sacrificial elements of the Passover forever. He was the complete fulfillment of the Passover lamb sacrifice. So when we say, behold the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, you know when we say that, right? This is what we're referring to. This single act on the day of preparation was the one to release us from that requirement. And number three, the future kingdom spoke of by the prophets of old, told of Jesus as the temple body symbol of the future. Every depiction of that holy city and that temple and this water running from this temple, Jesus himself, the temple, he's the temple and the body symbol. And finally, through this entire series, I hope you walked away uh, with a firm understanding of how Jesus was revealed as God himself through the image of water and throughout the scriptures. And I hope that you that you have still more questions, because that means I did a good job if you're still left with questions. (laughs) All right. So as we move forward, I just want to say congratulations. You did it. So give yourself a hand. You did it. You did it. You did it. You give yourself that for that. I'm very proud of the work you've done. Um, we made it through two back-to-back series about three months on water imagery in the Bible and how it relates to revealing Jesus as Messiah for us all. All. All means all. 
And so I pray this was enjoyable for you and enriching for you. And, you know, the next time that we get together, we're going to begin a new journey. We're going to begin a new journey. I have no hints to give today. <laughs> None. But I promise that it'll be worth your time if you, if you stick around with us. Ah, uh, yes, you get the gold star. I see the gold stars coming through the chat. But before we leave, let's pray. Because in Christ, the people of biblical times were given the opportunity to see God in person. God walked among them and he met them right where they were. And today is no different. That because of the spirit released on that day, seen physically, I guess, through the release of the water, and with Pentecost soon to follow, we have all access to this very personal Jesus. And he speaks to us individually and he wants to spend, as we could see from Ezekiel's imagery, he wants to have eternity with us in this great city. So if you want to acknowledge him as Messiah today and be welcomed home into that city and have us as your neighbors, if you're cool with that, <laughs> then we want you to pray with us today. And if you're a person who has been following and just want to take the moment to acknowledge and, and make your commitment, you know, we welcome you today. You know, we are, our, our vision is so, has been damaged in many ways over the last, over the last few months. There's so many of us who are suffering from vision damage. And I want you to realign your vision with the great beauty that God has for our future. That all things that happen must happen. And he's got a plan for all that's coming. And that should give us the hope for the future. And not let your, to not let your heart be troubled. And that, to not get weary in your well-doing because in due season you shall reap. If you what? You faint not. And we are looking forward to the reward of being there with him. Amen. So, Father, even as we are here, we pray. God, how our hearts long for that great city. For the coming again of our king. And that, Father, that even as we occupy, you've given us something to fight for. To fight for peace. To fight for hope. To fight for deliverance. To fight to maintain our right to, to, to speak on your behalf to share your love, to be beacons of it, to stand in the face of evil and show them that your love never fails and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God, that no calamity, no, no principalities, no power, no ruler of the darkness of this age, no spiritual wickedness in high places. God, that Lord, that as you've equipped us with the armor of God every day, it's so that we can continue to live this life, this beautiful life of love that you granted to us, that so many in this time may see as a flaw or as weakness, but God is the only thing that will endure even after all other things fail. We pray for all those who mourn today. We pray for all those who struggle. We, we pray for the families of those who have been lost. Even in this country, we've lost two great civil rights icons this weekend. God, we know that there are so many wondering what's next, who's next, who can be, who can go for us. But guess what? Jesus has already gone. And as long as Christ has gone before us, any of us can go. We are all called to great work. 
to this work, the work of extending this Jesus as nourishing bread, refreshing wine, and refreshing water to us all. Help us to find you right where you've always been, which is available. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.